Turn with me to the gospel according to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth account of one gospel. His name is Jesus, and we're in John chapter 20. We've been studying this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, since 1947. And now we are almost closed. I, I, I got to tell you, I am, I am um, saddened that it's, it's over. I, God has just been so awesome and, and has shown me so much. I hope he has done for you. But um, we did Mark a few years back, and it was actually a time of mourning. Like, it was over. Um, but that's a, it's over. So we'll, we'll, we'll study another book after this as well. And we'll do a study on, on the fruit of the Spirit. So turn with me to chapter 20. What we're going to do is we're going to read 24 through 31. That's our scripture lesson. The gospel according to John, chapter 20. Large numbers is the chapter. Small numbers are the verses. Verse 24, hear the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and, my, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. God had a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Keep your finger there. John 20 is where we will be. Uh, Children, you're dismissed with Children's Church. Uh, Teachers, children, uh, wonderful ministry here at King's and just bless the teachers and how they serve our kids uh, week after week. And and as you know, there's an opening there. Uh, It's an opportunity to really serve the Lord in a great way and Teaching children, man, let them hear in the gospel, coming alongside parents and helping them to understand the goodness and the greatness of our God. So uh, really consider stepping up and, and helping out on that ministry. We're close. We're close to the end of this glorious account of the perfect life, the sinless life, the atoning death, the vicarious death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these seven verses that we're in this morning, uh, in a very real way, they're not only a conclusion of the, of the narrative, but it concludes it in, in, a, in a beautiful and magnificent way. It shows us and it illustrates in many ways the entire book of John and what the entire gospel account is all about. Chapter 21 is really a, more of an epilogue, more of a, a closing kind of loosing, uh, tying up loose ends. But the, the verses that are before us are really the, 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 the climatic conclusion. For three years, Jesus has been announcing and showing the world who he is, the invisible made visible, the eternal God who took on humanity. And John, the gospel writer here, opened up this gospel account, if you remember, with a simple but very profound prologue. He said this in the opening of this book. 
In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, going back to Genesis, even before creation, John is showing that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, with God face to face. There is communion with God. And the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, The infinite glory, not the finite glory that we share, but the infinite glory that God shares with no one. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That truth concerning the person of Christ and the work that the Father gave Him to do, uh, He has been showing, He has been saying through His life and, and culminating in His death and resurrection from the grave. In fact, in John 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And he declares it lawful because, he said, my father is working until now, and I am also working. And the Jewish leaders uh, heard that, sought all the more, all the more, to try to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but it says that he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In fact, in John 5, Jesus claimed the same exemptions and, and prerogatives and privileges and rights as God himself, as Yahweh himself. He said, the son does nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does. You hear what he's saying? Whatever God the father does, whatever he does, the son does likewise. Creating, healing, extending love and mercy and grace. If you remember from chapter five, he he called an invalid to, to leave his life of sin and to follow him, Jesus did. Jesus said he had the authority and the exclusive rights and prerogatives to grant life himself, that life came from him, that he would be the final judge. Jesus even receives worship, which we will see in this narrative, it happens as well. John chapter 5, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That all may honor the Son just as in the same way They honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And that's the point of the gospel according to John. That's the point. To reveal the truth about Jesus, the invisible made visible, God become a man who lived and died to redeem us from the power of sin, Satan, and death. And the only proper, appropriate response is worship. Is worship. The text before us will illustrate that truth and conclude with that proper response. We're going to see Thomas responding in that way. And then the purpose of the book in chapter 20, verse 30. So here's a simple outline that we're going to follow. First, the reservations about faith. We're going to see Thomas is against, he's vehemently against, believing the testimony and the word of the apostles that the Lord has risen. Reservation. Next, we're going to realize, he's going to realize he's going to come to faith. Jesus shows up and makes Thomas a believer. Third, we'll see as we close in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20, resolution in faith. uh, We'll end up with a clear purpose statement of the entire book and respond in worship and then go to communion. So that's kind of where we're going, those three things, okay? So reservation about faith, realization through faith, and then, of course, resolution in faith. We'll call us, God will call us to, to faith in him. So number one, Reservation about faith. Look with me at verse 24. 
Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now if you remember from last week, Jesus shows up in the room. The room is locked and it's bolted closed. Behind the locked door, there were the ten disciples, uh, minus Judas who hung himself. Thomas was not there, obviously. Uh, And we don't know exactly how many there, but we know that there was more than just the ten. Because in Luke 24, we read about Cleopas and another unnamed man who was on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles, on their way on Resurrection Sunday, on their way in the afternoon, and Jesus shows up. And starts asking them questions. They don't know it's him. He, he hides himself from them. And as Jesus is walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, he says to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24, Resurrection Sunday. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He broke out the Old Testament and pointed to the Christ. And it says, while they were at Emmaus, Jesus breaks bread, and their eyes open. And they recognize it's the risen Christ. Now remember, this is Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead. They are like, our hearts burned within us, and then Jesus vanishes, right? He's gone. It's getting later in the afternoon, and they, 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 they said, we got to get back to Jerusalem. And that Sunday, before sundown, they beeline it back to Jerusalem. And where do they go? Behind the locked doors with the disciples. So we know they were there. And they're telling them everything that happened. And, 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 they're, and, they're, and they're locked up. They're, they're, they're in the room. It's bolted. They're fear. They have fear the religious authorities are going to be looking for them. Remember, it's Sunday morning. Jesus rose. There's no body. Not no body. There's no physical body. The tomb is empty. They're not happy. Jesus shows up and proclaims and brings peace to them, remember, from last week? And he breathes on them. There's this pre-Pentecost spiritual enlightenment opens up their eyes and gives them then their marching orders so that they understand what the purpose of coming to faith in Jesus is all about. It's about mission. We looked at that last week. Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus shows up. This is Sunday night. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, the missio Dei, the mission, Even so, I am sending you. And then he said this, and he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Remember we said in Luke chapter 24, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Here it says he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He was enlightening them as Peter was enlightened to know who the Christ was, the Son of God. Jesus said, my father gave you that So Jesus is opening their minds, showing he has authority, a spiritual authority over them, and so to help them understand. And he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's John. Luke says it this way. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, Jesus, to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. I'm witness of these things, and now sending you in the promise of the Father, stay in the city until you're clothed with on high. So Jesus announces to them this, this new covenant of forgiveness that his followers now are, have given responsibility, obligation to declare to people how their sins can be forgiven. We said no one has the authority to forgive sins but God alone, but God has given his people, the church, 
this, this, this responsibility, obligation to say if, if, if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust the work that he did on the cross for your sins, your, your sins are forgiven. They've been nailed to the cross. They went into the tomb. But if you reject Christ, we have the right and authority to say your sins are not forgiven. You'll die in your sins. Repent. Trust in Christ. That's the authority and obligation we have as a church. Now, we don't go inside everybody's heart and decide who's saved and who's not saved, but our job is to proclaim forgiveness of sins in the gospel. If you reject it, you reject the gospel. You're dying in your sins. But unfortunately, Thomas wasn't there. Right? Thomas missed that sermon. Thomas is important to come to church, right? He missed that sermon. He wasn't there. He got the memo, but he got the word from everybody else, and he did not hear that from the master himself. He was not present. We're not told why he wasn't there on Resurrection Sunday, but in the good providence of God and in his absence and subsequent coming to faith, what we have now in Scripture is one of the greatest Christological, Christ-centered, Christ-exaltation confession in all of the New Testament. So who's Thomas? What do we know about Thomas? Well, we know he was one of the 12 apostles. He was one that's been, been uh, selected and chosen by Jesus himself. Apostle, capital A, there's only 12. And given the authority to go and pre- preach the gospel and given the authority of Christ as Christ sent them out into the world. He's called the twin. Some of you might have the word didymus. It, it's the same thing as a Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Thomas, which means twin. He had a twin. He's been dubbed as, what do, we know, what do we know him mostly as? Doubting Thomas, right? You know what? I think he got a bum rap. And that nickname stuck with him, man. I mean, everyone knows Doubting Thomas. In fact, think of it this way. If Thomas wasn't so curious, you know, that type of, of questioning things, he probably, he's probably asking questions that was on everybody else's mind, but he had the guts to actually go, I got a question. Right? In fact, if he did not have the guts to speak up, you know what would not be in our Bibles? This verse. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was given to Thomas because he asked the Lord. We don't know the way. Show us the way. We don't know what you're talking about. Where where are we going? He, He was the guy that wanted to know for himself. And we have that beautiful verse of Scripture because of Thomas. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Imperfect Greek verb, continuously, they kept telling him. For eight days, I'm sure, we've seen the Lord. Thomas, yeah, okay, when I, yeah, we'll, we'll, when I see it, I'll know. You know. Thomas, I'm telling you, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord, over and over. But he said to them, listen, unless, you keep telling me, but unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, where Jesus was, had a spear shoved in his side, I will look, never, ESV picks it up, I will never believe, double negative, strong refusal of in the midst of continuous testimony after testimony, we've seen the Lord. You know, doubting is one thing. Refusing to believe is another. But then again, you know, I'm for the underdog. I mean, Thomas just wanted to see what everybody else saw. Like, I, you know what? I've been walking with you guys for three years. Jesus shows up. You all see him. I have and I want to see him. Right? Nothing any really more than what they want. He just kept saying, I want to see the Lord. I want to see the Lord. You know, that's a good lesson for us, right? 
Never stop giving testimony. You know, there's a lot of skeptics, but you know what? Just keep talking about Jesus. You know, I understand the scriptures, don't throw your pearls before swine. You have to be, you have to be careful. But you know what? They just kept telling him, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, Jesus is good. Jesus forgives sins, man. We, we need to just keep pressing on and demonstrating and declaring the gospel, the person and the work of Christ. But let me state something else that's obvious here. Thomas did not say, when the, when, when the apostle said, we saw Jesus, he's alive, Thomas did not say, so what? Listen, we have his teachings, we wrote down the things that he wanted us to write down, we have his example doesn't really matter. What we got to remember is all that he taught and said and lived among us. That is not what Thomas said. Thomas didn't want to see and hear the nice words Jesus said. Thomas wanted to see Jesus himself, the historical reality of the resurrection. I want to see him. Dr. Tim Keller, New York City, rightly said, there's a difference, listen to this, there's a difference between teaching and the gospel. The teaching about how you should live, but the gospel is about how, what he has done. So teaching is about how you should live. The gospel is about what he has done. A teaching, a philosophy is about you, but the gospel is about him. Teaching says if you love one another, and if we obey God and serve him and live like Jesus, then we will know God. But the gospel says a cleft is open in the walls of the world and God has come in. He has closed that gap. And that changes everything, end quote. Why is it so important for Thomas to see the resurrection of Christ? We covered the last few weeks ago. Let me just give you one verse Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Thomas, why did you want to see? Well, if there's no resurrection, Paul said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, proclaiming, demonstrating, and declaring the gospel and faith in Christ is in vain. Your faith is futile. You're wasting your time. You're still dead in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep, dead, euphemism for death, have perished. So it's a big thing. In fact, if you deny the resurrection of Christ, you deny the work of Christ. If you deny the resurrection of Christ, you deny the work of Christ who satisfied the justice of God with his sacrifice for sin when he offered himself up on the cross. His death and resurrection paid the penalty for sin, released us from the power of sin, and someday will deliver us from the presence of sin forever. Faith, true biblical faith in Christ means believing that his resurrection is our resurrection. He rose, we will rise. That his resurrection, his cross and resurrection is for our forgiveness. The Apostle Paul again wrote in Romans 10, 9, if you, you all, plural, y'all, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession that Jesus is Lord, he is the absolute authority. He is, his authority is unlimited and completely universal. He is Lord over the universe. I place myself under his authority. There's no such thing as faith, salvation, apart from acknowledging the lordship and the deity of Christ. Now, we're not talking, and please hear this, we're not talking about wavering in your faith. We're not talking about disobedience and sinning. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But one thing we do know, and I know, is I'm not Lord, he is. 
This outward confession arises from a profound conviction. Those who come to Christ believe in their hearts that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Other than that, really, the resurrection, if there is no resurrection, it's Jesus is just teaching us some well-intended ethical system. But because of his resurrection, it authenticates all that Jesus said, all that Jesus did. It's the stamp on which we know that our sins are forgiven. We have the assurance that we can be justified, just, made right, forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul continued to write in Romans 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Commentator Mouse in his uh, wonderful commentary on Romans says this, To believe with one's heart means to commit oneself at the deepest level to the truth as revealed and experienced. Confession is giving expression in words to that conviction, end quote. Those who have genuine faith, who truly accept the work of Christ and the resurrection from the dead on one's behalf, recognizes his deity, recognizes his lordship, recognizes the empty tomb, and with that, they're willing to go public, confessing with the mouth, believing that he's raised from the dead, and, and, and be able to at least come to that place of recognizing you're not Lord, he is. Very important. Another reason I think that Thomas wanted to see the risen Christ, you think about this for a minute. As I said, he's one of the 12, so he was appointed one of the 12 apostles given the authority as an apostle, capital A, okay? He wanted to see Jesus risen from the dead. If he was going to continue being an apostle, he needed to see Jesus risen from the dead. In fact, if, if you're an apostle, capital A, right? the little, little A's of people running around planting churches, I'm, I'm okay with that, but capital A with authority to write scripture, the authority that Jesus gave him, capital A, there's only 12, so somebody comes to you and says, I'm an apostle, say little a or big A. If they say big A, run, because they're crazy. If they're a church planner and they want to use that term, they can. I wouldn't, but little a is one thing. But anyway, in Acts chapter 1, the 11 apostles get together and they want to replace Judas, who hung himself. And it says they have to what? Be men who have accompanied them, who've walked with the Lord, went in and out among them, saw the baptism of John, and what? Were witnesses to his resurrection. Paul even talks about the apostolic authority and witness in 1 Corinthians, and he says, I was one untimely born, he appeared to me. In Ephesians 2.20, the apostles are the foundations of the church. It is the apostles who saw him, apostles who dealt with him or heard his teaching and, and, and wrote everything down with the authority of Christ that gives us in this. So for Thomas, he needed to see the risen Christ it was a part of the criterion for him to be or to have apostolic authority. Show me Jesus. Realization about faith. Look at verse 26, realization through faith. Eight days later, we've been telling them, right? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. All right, so it's the following Sunday. Although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So here they are, still afraid. That's why I said it was a pre-Pentecost kind of uh, endowment of the Spirit that he opened his eyes to the gospel because after Acts 2, when the Spirit comes, there's no fear anymore. I mean, they're, they're preaching the gospel. They're getting whipped, beaten, thrown in jail. But they're still afraid. Pentecost hasn't come. Acts 2 hasn't come yet. And then Jesus, verse 27, 
says to Thomas, I'm adding this. He didn't say this, but I'm saying it. He said to Thomas, man, I heard you last week talking to these guys. They've been trying to tell you for, for a week that I've risen from the dead. It doesn't say that, but notice that Jesus knew what Thomas was saying and Jesus was not present. Then he said to Thomas, I heard you. <laughs> Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand out. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think this light rebuke has more to do with his unbelief, his refusal to believe than his doubting. I mean, he just would not believe. He, 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 he just says, I am not going to hear the testimony and the evidence of the apostolic band of brothers. I'm not listening to them. Like us, who, but he, he was told about the resurrection. He was, he was continually told about the resurrection. Like us, uh, we do not need to see the risen Christ because we have evidence, we have witness of the testimony of the risen Christ, of those who saw him. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to him anyway. Jesus comes to him and loves him and shows him. We don't, you know what, if you look at the text closely, it doesn't say that uh, excuse me, it doesn't say that Thomas actually put his fingers in his side. You notice that? Put your fingers here, see my side, see my hands. And what does it say? Verse 28, my Lord and my God. There's, there's no mention, and most commentators point that out, there's no mention that he actually pressed into the Lord's side. It was, I think it was all just enough to see Christ risen was all Thomas needed. And then he answers, my Lord and my God. Do you see the bookends? Do you see chapter 1 prologue and chapter 20 verse, uh, verse 29 or 28? Do you see the, the confession, the, the, the point of the prologue? It's, it's a full circle. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Lord, God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. 20 chapters later, we get there. I'm glad we do. And listen, don't let a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or any other cult that doesn't believe in the deity of Christ tell you that when you open up that verse and they say, oh, you know what? It was just an OMG. 21st century idiom, 2,000 years ago. And, and they say this, this. I'm not making this up. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. They're saying, ah, Thomas was like, oh my God. Listen, that is so, that is, <laughs> that is such poor eisegesis, which means reading into the text, rather than let the text speak for itself to exegete the passage. It, it is such a poor interpretation of historical facts. Do you realize that a Jew would never, ever, ever use a slang like 21st century America in those days with God's name. Never. That doesn't come out of their lips 2,000 years ago. Absolutely ridiculous. Thomas responded as he would to see a man who was dead rise with a glorious resurrection body, and that's all he needed to see, and now we have this language of adoring worship. It's that simple. And if Jesus was not God... He would have, we would expect Jesus, who's a, a moral man, a decent teacher, to say, listen, Thomas, stop that. That's wrong. Don't do that. But that's not what happens. 
He accepts Thomas's worship. And notice the personal nature of this. Thomas doesn't say, oh Lord, oh God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You see, theology says there's a God, study of God. There is a God, creator. Personal testimony, personal relationship says my God, my Lord and my God. You see the difference? It's both propositional and personal. And look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Have you believed because you've seen me, Thomas? The answer is yes, I I believe now that I've seen you. But Thomas, what's interesting about Thomas is, Thomas took his doubt straight to the source. Thomas said, you know what? I'm not believing this. I want to see him. Lord, if you're real, make yourself known. I want to see his hands. And you know, there's a difference between doubting and being skeptical because you want to remain in control of your own life and not bow your knee to God. And a doubt that's honest and says, you know what? If you're real, Lord, I, I, I want to know. See, Thomas was doubting, but he took his doubts to the source and asked God, reveal yourself to me. And you know, when we do that, God will give you the gift of faith. He will reveal himself to you. But if you're saying, you know what, I don't know if I believe this Christianity stuff. I'm not sure if I believe this whole thing. And you're just looking for a way to run your own life, be your own Lord, your own Savior. God will not come. Faith comes when the heart of a human being comes into contact with the divine living being. And then he receives the gift of faith. Have you seen Jesus this way? Have you seen Jesus through the eyes of faith? Blessed are thou, he says. It's it's a beatitude, by the way. Blessed. We know from uh, Matthew 5 with the beatitudes. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That includes us, family. That includes us who believe in Christ since his ascension. It includes you and me, and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostolic testimony. And Jesus says, you're blessed for that. We get to see him through the eyes of faith. As the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin, we realize we rightly deserve judgment. Our eyes are open to the good news that Jesus came into the world, died and redeemed us to forgive us through faith, by grace. And Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on those who believe in the apostolic witness. When I got up this morning, I don't know about you, one of the first things I do, especially in the summertime, is I hit my app for... The Yankees. Did they win last night? Can't stay up too late. And whatever is on there, see the yeah or ah, go to recap, right? So, you know, there are a lot of things that you and I believe. We read newspapers, we read hockey about hockey games, baseball, football. Maybe there's a raging fire or a tornado that ripped through a town. We're talking about historical events. Let's exclude political silliness. Just like historical events, tornadoes and fires and and sporting events and scores. We believe a lot of things that we read about, a lot of things that we believe, but we're not present to see those things. And the reason why we believe them is because, number one, they're a reliable account. I believe the guy that did the app got the score right. Right? You know, it's 10 to 5, we won, we're in first place, matter of fact, just want to say that. All right, you, you believe that, that it's a reliable app. He's going to tell the truth about the score. Number two, if it was not correct, if it was not right and they really lost, 
There's enough people that were at Yankee Stadium watching the game that would be like, that ain't true. They're reliable, and there are a lot of people that would call to account those who have lied. Wouldn't get very far. The truth is that you and I understand the world based upon faithful recording of eyewitness testimonies. That's the way it works. That's what God has done. He's faithfully recorded for us through John, the eyewitness account and the events of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. I mean, how do we know that George Washington really lived? How many people go, you know what, if I don't see him, I don't believe it. Really, we have, we have plenty of evidence. All that he's done for our nation, all that he's done, we have, we have, we have plenty of validation and verifying his existence. Through what? Eyewitness account. It's the same with Jesus. Eyewitnesses were present. The evidence is there. And the Lord says, blessed are you, Thomas, you've seen and believe, but blessed are those and the rest of the people who have never seen but still believe. And we, like Thomas, need to come to faith in this. And when we do come to faith in this, it looks like, my Lord and my God. Thomas has moved from doubting the resurrection to believing in and worshiping him as the risen Lord. Blessed are those, Jesus is saying, who, who cannot share with Thomas's experience in seeing the risen Christ, but share in Thomas's experience of faith in Christ. Blessed are you. Paul wrote again, Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For us, faith comes not by sight, but what we have heard, what we have read, what has been proclaimed, and what is heard comes from the declaration of Christ. John wants his readers to come to that same point of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that he is both Lord and God. All who live and love and worship and have faith in him, worship him as Lord and God, illustrated in this story and now explained in John's purpose. Look at lastly, resolution in faith. Verse 30. Verse 30 is connected to verse 29. So Thomas doesn't want to, doesn't believe, disbelieves, I want to see, he sees, he comes to faith, he worships God, and worships the Lord Jesus Christ, proper response, and then John jumps right into verse 30 with the purpose, see the connection. Now Jesus did other signs, not just the resurrection, other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, I've chosen these, so that you may what? Believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, it's been pointed out, and we pointed this out. I'll do it quickly. That there are seven major signs, major miracle signs, culminating with the final sign of his resurrection. All for the purpose of showing the reality of his deity and to invoke faith in the Christ, the Son of God, so that we may have life in his name. They're sprinkled throughout the gospel account. But ultimately, remember, signs are signposts or significant, pointing to something, not the sign, but pointing to something greater and better, and his name is Jesus. You remember in chapter 2, the first sign miracle was uh, when Jesus turned water into wine. And it actually says in chapter 2, verse 11, this was the first sign. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You you see this creative power of God on display. The second miracle, remember in chapter 4, healing of the official son. In God's grace and his mercy, he hears about this boy. The father comes to him and his son is dying and Jesus says, go to the official your son will live. That very hour he was healed and his entire household comes to faith 
in Jesus Christ. And it says, now this is the second sign, chapter 4, verse 54, that Jesus did. See, John is tracking these miracles, these signs pointing to Jesus. First, he had power, um, a creative power. Now we have power over illness. The third sign is the pool of Bethsaida. Remember in chapter 5, superstition was the invalids would get into the water when an angel came down. It was, such, it was superstitious. It wasn't real. And then Jesus tells the man, listen, pick up your mat. 38 years he's been on a mat and go home. Pick up your mat and go. And we see power, power to restore to wholeness, power over disabilities, power over creation, power over illness. Fourth sign was the feeding of 5,000. Remember? John 6, little boy, five, <laughs> five loaves and two fish. Multiplies it, feeds probably up to 15,000 with food left over. It's my kind of meal, food left over. Creative power of God again on display, power over nature. Signpost 5, he's walking on water. They're rowing in this boat. You remember the disciple, and they're freaking out. And Jesus just comes and walks on the water. Power over nature, power over creation, power over illness. Number six, the man born blind, you remember? From birth. Jesus says, go wash your eyes. Put some mud in his eyes, go wash. He comes back, he what? He could see. Divine power over blindness. And the seventh miracle, if you remember, John 11. Lazarus, in the grave, four days. His body's decaying. And Jesus says, come out. Listen, power over death, power over blindness, power over nature, illness, power to create. And what we need to see, and I want you to see this morning as we conclude, that the, this, the, the greatest demonstration, the greatest sign, the greatest significance has been Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. He said, I lay down my life. No one's taking it from me. I lay it down. No one's taking it from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. Do you believe that he's the Christ? The son of the living God. The word Christ, Christos in the Greek, Messiah, Hebrew. In the Old Testament, he used to anoint people with oil. And, and, and it, 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 that's what Messiah means. Christ means the anointed one. And they would anoint them with oil. It would be a, a sign that, that, that someone has been given authority Oil would be poured over their head or they would anoint them. They did it for kings. They did it for priests. They did it for prophets in the Old Testament. Symbolic, symbolic uh, anointing that God has chosen and consecrated that person for, for a special duty. A king to rule over God's people in the Old Testament. A priest to mediate and to minister to God's people. A king, a priest, and a prophet to preach the word, to proclaim the, the word of God to the people. Jesus Christ, listen is the perfect fulfillment of each and every role. He is the true and better and complete king, prophet, and priest. He's been divinely chosen, anointed, spirit-empowered. He is the true and better priest. He mediated, ministered to the people by his own blood, shed on the cross, dying in our place. The wall of sin has been torn down by our ultimate and great high priest. He is the true and better prophet. He not only speaks the word of God, he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He perfectly revealed the Father. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the true and better and perfect king who can conquer and free us from the enemy of death and sin and Satan, a king to reign and to rule and to defeat the enemies of our souls. He is the Christ. He's also the son of God. 
the unique Son of God, of the same nature from all eternity, all sharing the attributes of deity. Jesus himself said over and over, John 8, I have no sin. John 14, if you see me, you see the Father. John 8 again, before Abraham was, I am. The divine name spoken by God to Moses, he takes on himself. I am who I am, the uncreated, uncaused, self-existent one, eternal. And John is saying, and I want you to hear me. John is saying in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 is, listen, you've been reading and studying my gospel account for some time now. Have you come to the end and understand and grasp the purpose of my book? Do you truly believe? There's a man by the name of Ken Davis. He wrote this in his book. And I, you know what? I meant to look up. I don't remember what book he wrote it in. He gives an illustration of what it means to truly believe. And I want you to listen to the illustration and we'll close. He said this. In college, I was asked to prepare a lesson to teach my speech class. We were to, to be graded on our creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of my talk, he says, was The Law of the Pendulum. I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs a swinging pendulum. The law of the pendulum, he said, is the pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released because of friction and gravity. When the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it finally rests, which is a state of equilibrium, where all forces acting on the on a pendulum are equal. 20 minutes. So then he takes a three-foot string, a child's toy top, right, and secured it to the blackboard with a thumbtack, he says. I pulled the top and, and made a mark by the blackboard. Every time it swung, I would put the mark on the blackboard. It took less than a minute, he says, for the top of uh, the, the swing to come to a rest. So it was swinging and kind of came to a rest. He said, when I finished the demonstration, the marking on the blackboard proved my feces. He was correct. So I asked how many people in the room, it's a college class, believed the law of the pendulum was true. He says, all my classmates raised their hand and so did the teacher. He started to walk to the front of the room thinking the class was over. In reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling in the beams, in the middle of the room was a large, crude, but functional pendulum, a 250-pound piece of metal, right, tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. He said, then I invited the instructor to climb up on the table and sit in the chair with his back of his head against the cement wall. I then brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose. Holding the pendulum just an inch away from his nose, I once explained, again, explained the law of the pendulum that he had so applauded, he had applauded just minutes ago. He said to the teacher, if the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room and return short of the releasing point. Your nose will be just fine. (laughs) After that, he said, he looked at him. He looked at him in his eye and he said, sir, do you believe, this is the teacher, do you believe this is true? He said there was a long pause. Huge beads of sweat formed in his upper lip. And then weakly he nodded and whispered, yes. I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused and momentarily and then started back. I never saw a man move so fast in my life. He literally dived from the table, skillfully stepping around the still swinging pendulum. And then I said to the class, does he believe in the law of the pendulum? 
And the students unanimously answered, no. True biblical faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is when we intentionally abandon ourselves, completely trust. Not running, but trusting, not in ourselves, not in our good works, but trusting in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection from the grave to rescue us from our sin and the debt we owe to God. He took the wrath so that we can have freedom. He took the wrath and judgment so that we can be rescued, forgiven, brought into the family of God. This saving faith includes repentance, is turning from sin, and commitment and submission, not jumping off that chair to the Lord Jesus Christ in complete trust. So the question is, have you resolved this morning to believe that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Son of God. Is he your Lord and your God? Do you have life in his name? Where are we? This communion table is about Jesus. So it's a time in which we can be strengthened in our faith, we can, we can grow in our faith. We can rest in our faith. We can trust Christ in our faith. It's not what we do. It's what he's already done. He died. Bread is symbolic of his body that was broken. The cup, symbolic of the blood that was shed for us. Are you trusting in that alone? Do you have no righteousness of your own? Do you have no moral uh, aptitude of your own? Are you trusting solely in the work of Christ? If you'd have, then the table's for you. The band's gonna play. We're gonna confess our sins quietly in your seat, repent of our sins, and then celebrate the Lord's Supper together and that he died for you and rose from you. If you're not a Christian, just sit and pray. We wanna talk to you. We love you. We're glad you're here. This table is for those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the kindness and mercy you've shown to us in the gospel. Father, thank you for the account that we see in the proper response of worship. And God, as we go to communion, as we reflect on your work for us, Lord Jesus, dying in our place, rising from the dead, Father, we we pray that Christ would be known to us, that we would trust him completely. Spirit of God, open our hearts. Help us to confess and repent of sin and help us celebrate and give ourselves completely, totally to you who has given himself completely and totally to us. In Jesus' name.